Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Uh, my name is Casey Patrick. I'm the Assistant Medical Director. Joining me today is uh, Clinical Chief Jordan Anderson. Hello. When we have multiple audio snafus today, it is purely my fault. I'm running the board. And today we're going to talk about a topic that we've tossed around here in the clinical department at MCHD, really in, in various uh, shapes and sizes since I started uh, as Assistant Medical Director. And it's really a subject to me that's been a little bit of a conundrum to try to teach because it's not a classic textbook, anatomy, pathophysiology, uh, biochemistry, pharmacology type topic. It's a lot, of, a lot of gray area here. And today we're going to talk about high-risk refusals. And this is really one of the uh, most difficult situations that paramedics can find themselves in. And in all honesty, there's a really direct corollary for me as an emergency physician in patients who uh, want to leave against medical advice. So it's a very similar situation that I find myself sometimes in my, in my day job. And for the paramedic listeners out there, one that can really cause a lot of heartburn. And there's no high-risk refusal chapter uh, in the paramedic text. There's no against medical advice chapter in in Tenton Alley's or, you know, one of the Rosen's, one of the emergency medicine texts. It doesn't exist. This is one that you sort of have on the job training for and you learn kind of by watching watching your superiors, watching your mentors and watching other people. Sometimes that's good when you see people do this correctly. You save that in your in your data bank. Sometimes you see people do this very, uh, very poorly. I've probably been a, as a practitioner, done both. So I thought long and hard about this over the last couple months on how best to teach this. And as I've said before on the podcast, I'm not a huge fan of mnemonics because I think a lot of times they're just one more thing to forget. But this one, to me, lends itself to a mnemonic basically to give it a structure because we don't have a chapter to refer to. There's no baseline literature for us to go back and, and print the paper from American Journal of Cardiology in 1984. There's nothing, nothing there for us to really fall back on. So I messed around with letters and a notebook with paper and a pencil. Those still exist. I have those at my home and drew out words for a couple of weeks and came up with fears because I think this high risk refusal situation is a situation that uh, we all fear uh, that creates you know, fears in all of us. So F-E-A-R-S, how's that apply to high risk refusals? Full exam with vitals is F. E, explain the real risks to the patient. A, ask for assistance needed. R, record the discussion. And S, have a supportive attitude. So full exam, explain real risks, ask for assistance, record the discussion, and end with a supportive attitude always. So that's our mnemonic we're going to start with. And Jordan and I are going to go through each one separately. But before we roll into the further discussion of fears, no discussion of high-risk refusals is complete without talking a little bit about competence and capacity. And in the medical world, almost every day uh, on shift, I think I hear these words probably used incorrectly. I've been guilty of this as much as anyone. But for the listeners out there, just for a quick review before we get started, um, competence is a legal determination. A judge can determine competence. Me as an emergency physician, Jordan as a paramedic, we, we can't, by definition, determine competence. 
we can think a patient is competent or not, but that is a, that is a legal determination. What we actually determine when we decide whether someone can care for themselves or make decisions for themselves, what we determine is capacity. And capacity requires four things to happen, it requires four things, four boxes to be checked before we say a patient has capacity. Number one, a patient must be able to understand that a decision is to be made. So the patient has to get that there's, there's a decision here. They must be able to understand the risks of that decision. Number two. Number three, they must be able to communicate those risks back to us. That's a very important one, I think, sometimes it gets left out. Number four, the patient must be free of coercion or other influence. And again, nowhere in one through four is alert and oriented times three or A&O times four or what we often see as justification for a patient to be able to refuse care or to leave against advice. So again, capacity is what we determine. A judge determines competence. And we've got to, number one, make sure the patient knows there's a decision. They've got to know the risks. They've got to be able to communicate those risks and be free of coercion or other influence. So let's roll on into our, uh, our mnemonic. And I'll start with the, the first letter, F, full exam with vitals. And just like I just said, mental status and capacity go hand in hand. And we have to determine whether they're alert and oriented times, you know, three or A and O times four, whatever you want, whatever, whichever one of those you choose to pick. Um, but after that, your, your work's not finished. Um, we have to use our vital signs, right? Toxidromes, hypoxia, infection, sepsis. Uh, I could keep going, but all of these conditions can impair our mental status. So if a patient has a heart rate of 30 or a heart rate of 230 or a O2 sat of 79, uh, temp of 104 and a systolic of 85, all of these, all of these conditions can impair oxygenation, can impair perfusion, and on down the line, impair the patient's ability to understand risks and to think properly. Uh, potential intoxication is one that's always going to be on the list. So is it a sympathomimetic intoxication, tachycardic, hypertensive, febrile, sweaty, opiate sedatives? Do they have pinpoint pupils? Uh, are their respirations, you know, six? Are they somnolent? Um, alcohol, we see it every day. Uh, we know, we know what it looks like, but alcohol in itself doesn't always mean that a patient lacks capacity. Definitely a gray zone, and we'll talk more about that uh, as the podcast progresses. Hypoxia definitely can lead to confusion. Uh, shock, poor perfusion equals altermental status. So look at your vital signs. Think about the pathophysiology, why the patient could have potentially called or why their family member may have called or why the nursing home called. And remember that just because they're alert and oriented times three, doesn't mean that you've 100% clear capacity. And finally, you know, dementia is another is another big one, especially when we're talking about nursing homes and elderly folks. Um, you know, demented patients can be very difficult to assess capacity on. And if the patient's in the care of a family member, is that okay? Is the patient safe at home? Are they alone? We run on plenty of patients here at MCHD every day who whose dementia is progressing and they live at home alone. Uh, do we need to involve adult protective services? Uh, is it a child? Are they, are they free of coercion, human trafficking, all kinds of really difficult situations where we may need to involve child protective services or, again, adult protective services? We have to make sure the patient's free of coercion and free of other influence when we look at the, the four requirements for capacity. And finally, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't miss in, mention suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation. Uh, these are both situations to where, you know, capacity is out the window in those situations. If a patient is dangerous to themselves, dangerous to others, 
we have to do what's right for them and uh, keep them safe and keep others safe. So full exam with vitals, consider underlying pathophysiology. It's more than just alert and oriented times three for the F in fears. Jordan's gonna take over now and talk about E and uh, move on in, in our mnemonic. Okay, so for the E, we have explain real risks. And I think when you're talking about capacity, it's, it's frustrating that you wanna learn four questions to ask and determine if a patient's capable um, of making a medical decision. It's not that easy, but explaining the risks is really a big component to that. I have to be able to explain the risks uh, to a patient and have them verbalize that back to me to make sure they have capacity. Um, if, if I don't explain the risks, how, how could they possibly know what the risks are and, and explain that back to me? So explaining the risks is, is really a component of capacity uh, that, that's easy to remember on scene because that, that's what we're used to doing. We're, we're going to explain the risks when someone doesn't want to go to the hospital. And so uh, for many years or, or many patients, uh, too many patients, the risk is you could die, right? That's, that's the risk we're avoiding, but that's not necessarily what we need to be telling people. We need to explain real risks to people uh, that, that are more likely. So if they have an infection or a wound, a laceration, you would tell them that the, the laceration could, could worsen, could be infected, uh, or if, uh, if they're having chest pain, it could be a heart attack. That might be a case that, that they could die. If this is a heart problem, um, you could die, or shortness of breath could worsen. Just give, give real risks, and then you want them to be able to repeat that back to you. Um, don't use words um, that they don't understand. Use words that, that make sense to them. That way, what you're trying to ensure is that, that they can repeat that back to you and that they do know what's happening. So if you're using medical words that they don't understand, you're not really doing the patient a service in, in responding back to you. I think a good sort of insert here to remember that oftentimes, in my personal experience as a practitioner, when I say things like, you could die, I often think that implies to the patient that we're just trying to, you know, cover ourselves. They know right? that's a liability statement. Yeah, and... and we are concerned about liability in these cases to say we're not is being, you know, disingenuous, but in all reality, our number one concern for these patients is that they're going to be okay. So by saying, you know, your wound looks infected, you can have bacteria that spread from the wound into your bloodstream and cause, you know, septic shock that may, Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't understand that. Like, you know, as opposed to a blanket, you could die statement. What well, makes us all feel better because oh, we told the patient they could die. But in their minds, I think sometimes that sounds like we just want to check that box and move on to the next patient. I think that's a, a fine point there, but I've found it to be much less effective to give that broad blanket statement than to, than to be more specific. Or point out, if it's an infected wound, point out what makes you think it's infected. The, the red streaks coming um, from your wound or the warmth from your wound or the fact that you have a fever are all signs of infection. So you're able to pinpoint something medical that maybe the patient did not know that indicates they're at higher risk than they thought they might be. Or, or a vital sign, a specific vital sign. Your blood pressure makes me think that um, you're having this incident or your heart rate is fast. That could indicate an internal bleed. Give them uh, whatever medical piece that you're finding puts them at risk and, and explain it to them very clearly on how that, that puts them at the risk so they can make the decision um, that they think is in their best interest. And always leave them with the fact that when we, when we meet them in, the, in their apartment complex or on the side of the road or at the grocery store, wherever they're, they're calling from, that there are labs and x-rays and CTs and basic time extension that's available in the emergency room that we don't have at the, at the home, you know, in the truck at the roadside. And those, not only the risk, but the benefits of going to the hospital is an important component of that. 
So full exam with vitals, explain, explain real risk, not just you could die. A, ask for assistance. So high-risk refusals are just that. That's what we're talking about. This is a high-risk situation. So anytime we find ourselves in these situations, it's important that we get help. So who are we going to ask for assistance? There's all kinds of ways that this can, this can branch out. Here at MCHD, you know, we've got a tiered supervisory structure intact. Call your supervisor, your district chief. Here at MCHD, you can even get the, you know, I'm, myself, I'm on right now. If, if we end up in one of these situations where, where we're it's, you know, stuck in a tough spot, I get these calls not infrequently to my own phone at home. These are, these are 24-7, 365 important. These are, these are some of the most high-risk situations we can be in. And unfortunately, sometimes when you call me at 2 in the morning and the patient is being uh, scared and resistant, and you know the original the original arriving medic crew gives them all the risks and all the concerns uh, chief shows up on scene and echoes that and the patient still doesn't want to go and we're all really concerned sometimes that handing that cell phone over and saying here's dr patrick would you talk to him about you know what you're concerned about and let him hear you and have this discussion oftentimes talking to the doctor can be can be the kicker and you, for folks listening to other services out there, you may have other other arrangements for online medical direction and other protocols that you have to follow. But again, take it up the chain. It's 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 very very important that we get everyone involved in asking for for assistance here. Sometimes it's not just uh, the medical personnel. Sometimes you know we've got fire on scene. We've got law enforcement colleagues on scene. Different eyes and ears. Different approaches to the situation never hurt. Uh, family's going to be on scene, right? So. The spouse, the brother, the sister, the son, the daughter. Guilt trips are cheap, right? They're cheap. There's no side effects. Use all the advantages that you have. If you think a patient is sick and you are concerned, try to involve everyone you can, if possible, to try to convince the patient to um, reassure the patient that you're just trying to do what's, do what's right for them. So full exam, explain real risk, ask for, assist, ask for assistance. And again, that can be multiple folks, as we just talked about. Next on the list is record accurately. Talk a little bit about your your chart habits here, Jordan. Some of the some of the uh, the good and the bad that you've seen when we review these. You know, the the other person I would add ask for assistance are uh, healthcare workers. There might not just emergency responders, but if you're in a nursing home, that might be a healthcare provider or a hospice patient, someone that the patient really respects in the healthcare field. If you can get them on your on your train, then the patient's much more apt to go. Excellent point. Always think about the primary care provider or the, the nursing home doc if you're there in the in the extended care facilities for sure. What if we're on the R in the fears? We're at recording accurately, and this is this is the point of the podcast that you, you know comes up. If you didn't chart it, it didn't happen. If you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. Uh, how, I hate it. How would you want to say that? Um, I think hate's probably an accurate word there for me. Um, and true, right? So when you have a uh, high potential for litigation um, on a refusal, it really comes true. You need to write down what happened. You need to write down essentially the, the fears mnemonic, right? That you, uh, that the patient did have capacity, that you did explain the risks, and that you asked for assistance, everyone that you got involved in the, in the case. So that when you look back, it, you have documentation that it happened. I've written a lot of refusals. They don't have to be 20 pages, but they do have to uh, paint that picture. They ha- don't just this isn't where you can write A and O times four to prove capacity. You have to write down what made you feel as a p- provider that the patient had capacity. And so I think 
if you're able to convey why you felt they had capacity, when you look back at your narrative, it's clear that you had the patient's best interest at heart. If your narrative paints that picture that you tried to do uh, what was in their best interest, uh, th you have a good narrative. So in summary, in your in your documentation, in your PCR, you should have your concerns, the risks and benefits, that the patient had capacity, and that you encouraged the patient um, to go to the hospital. But if not, what's the backup plan? Did they, uh, can, can they call their PCP or uh, that, that you allowed them to call 911 back if they needed anything? And I would just add in there too, when you, when you document that you told them the risks, I think it's important to also add into that sentence. And I think I'm guilty of this at times, just you know, half a sentence that says, patient risk explained, patient able to uh, appropriately and accurately uh, repeat those risks back to, to myself or to my partner and make sure that, you know, that, that part of the capacity equation is one that I think that we leave out at times, probably by accident really more than anything, but making sure that it's clear from the chart that they were able to repeat those, repeat those back. So that's, that's fear. We've gotten full exam, uh, assessment of capacity, asking for assistance, uh, using, using help, uh, explaining real risks, not just you could die, uh, recording accurately, concisely. Uh, it's got to have all the parts. It doesn't have to be a 200-page novel. And the S, I think, may be the most important part of the above. Uh, if you do all the above and you miss the S portion, I think it can still absolutely all come crashing down. And the S is to have a supportive attitude, to be supportive to the patient, even if you disagree with their choice. Uh, there's plenty of medical literature out there that looks at physicians who get, uh, who are litigated against physicians who get sued, and it's very well documented that jerks get sued, right? And in this situation, me as a younger provider, a patient comes in the emergency department, has chest pain, shows up, wants the chest pain evaluated. I tell them I think they've got acute coronary syndrome, and they decide they want to go take care of their cats and smoke cigarettes. That used to be extremely frustrating to me. Um, and I know I've heard paramedics echo the same thing, like, you called me, and I'm here, and now you want me to leave? And what's going on here? And I think it's a very easy knee-jerk response to take that personally, uh, to get upset back at the patient, you know, basically reflect that back onto them, and then take a situation where you're concerned for a patient and you want to explain risk and you want to explain benefits and turn it into a confrontational situation. And that is not helpful in these situations. Again, jerks get sued, right? And not, that's not why we practice medicine. That's not why we're providing care. That shouldn't be the end all be all underlying concern for us is that we don't want to get sued, but that's definitely part of this. And so if having a supportive attitude can, can decrease that risk, we, we need to do that. And remember, remember that sick patients can be terribly irrational and have 100% capacity, and that's okay. We just have to document and explain and be, be concerned and give them facts and record it appropriately, and, and it's all right. And remember that irrationality often equals fear. It equals fear of the unknown. Sometimes it can come from pain. Sometimes it can come from a combination of all of those things. So it's hard to tease out what's causing that irrationality. And sometimes we can, you know, if we get to the fact that we're, that they're afraid or that they're in pain, we can reassure them that, you know, their fears are being addressed or their pain is going to be addressed or, you know, what have you. Sometimes it's hard to figure out why patients are irrational. And that's a really difficult, me personally as a provider, a really difficult situation. I don't like that. And, you know, someone is, 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 
upset and irrational and scared and concerned. I want to try to figure out why and to try to help them. But in the end, our job is to assess capacity, get all the help we can, record it as appropriately as we can, examine thoroughly, and then we have to leave them with, at some point, you know, they still may want to stay, right? They still may want to stay with a, you know, with a, with a leg that looks like it's infected, right? Or a heart rate of 120 and chest pain, and you may really be concerned for a PE because they had a hip replacement a week ago. They still may want to stay home despite all your best efforts. And at that point, we can't leave that with a bad taste in their mouth, right? We can't decide, oh, well, then, you know, stick it. It's not the appropriate way to leave it. We have to leave it with a supportive attitude. Offer to return at any time. Encourage patients to use us. You know, we're, we're on 24-7, 365. Same thing I say at the emergency department. Our doors never lock. We're always available. Uh, if and when they change their mind, call us back. And don't take these refusals personally. I'll close it with that. It'll drive you nuts and give you ulcers. Life's too short, you know. Just take the high ground, be professional, and leave the patients with a supportive attitude. So that's fears. Uh, take that, write it down. Most, most of you listeners out there do all of these things. But hopefully in times when it gets difficult, this will provide us with a little bit of structure. So if that's the acronym, you want to go through some case examples and kind of see if we can apply it? Yeah, let's go through a couple cases and then we'll wrap up uh, just a little bit for conversation and to think about some of the, the, the gray areas that we definitely have here. So I'm going to throw you a case, Jordan. Uh, take it and tell me what you think you would, what, is, what are some of the, the bullet, bullet high points that you need to address? So we've got a 25-year-old male. Uh, it's 45 northbound. Roll over MVC, you arrive to the scene to find uh, the guy staggering on the side of the road outside his vehicle. His left arm looks deformed, and when you look over at the car, you can see uh, beer cans uh, fill in the passenger floorboard. Okay, so this one kind of stops at the capacity mark, right? If I'm assuming this patient wants to refuse, and so so the difficult thing would be does this patient have the capacity to yeah, refuse? So, and so, so you, you tell him you're going to get on the stretcher, you're going to take him to the hospital, put an IV in, take care of him. He says, I'm not going to no hospital. I want to go home. I'm calling my, calling my, my girlfriend. Well, I think, you, I think you make an important point to say that the first kind of assumption you make when you approach someone is that they want to go to the hospital. That's why we got there. So kind of always make progress to, hey, let's get on the cot and take you to the hospital. And, and when they throw the stop sign, that's when you, that's when you suddenly uh, work on the, the refusal discussion with them on why they don't want to go. But um, you're right. So this would be a full assessment um, to to decide what, you know, if they have capacity or not. That's when you start asking questions to see that they know what's going on in their environment. Um, you said staggering around, though? Yep. Staggering, so, arms deformed, so pretty belligerent. Right. So I think with the staggering comment, I think it's easy um, or, or relatively easy on a big gray scale uh, to determine that he probably lacks the capacity um, based on the influence of alcohol. Now, I wouldn't, or alcohol is not a... a a one-stop shop to can't get transported just because they had a beer. Um, but, but if they've had enough alcohol that they're staggering, I would say that they don't have the capacity to determine if they uh, need medical transport or not. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think these are tough, right? You throw into, uh, you know, you throw into the equation mechanism, right? He's got a deformed arm and a rollover vehicle. So, you know, it's not a, a fender bender, uh, you know, a little uh, rear end uh, car stop, the, car behind you going, you know, eight miles an hour, there's a significant mechanism going on. And again, mechanism in and of itself is not a deal breaker, just like alcohol is not, you know, just because you had a beer doesn't mean you can't refuse transport. 
just because you had a high mechanism of injury doesn't mean you can't refuse transport. But both of those things should pique your, pique your curiosity quite a bit. Your antennas should right. perk up quite a bit. And you should be very, very careful, fall back on your fears mnemonic and, and fall back on your four points of capacity and really make sure that you dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And the, and the A part, right? This would be an ask for assistance. Um, ask maybe is there a loved one on scene that that wants them to go they obviously have a broken arm yeah, somebody um, in the car with them for does, sure does law enforcement want them to go uh, one of those conversations and then I think if you take the alcohol out of this completely and say it was a, a, a bull rider with a known deformity there will be certainly people that that refuse with known injuries and and they can accept that you know the the bull rider will say something and I've have a few of these right like no 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 I know my arm is broken I'm not going to the hospital I'll go myself like no transport um, and those always put me in an uncomfortable spot too. But if they have the capacity and can, can verbalize what the injury is, what's going on and uh, what the risks are with that, then it's just kind of an uncomfortable spot for you, but not the wrong thing to do necessarily. Yeah, take, take alcohol to this case and I, you still have a staggering individual that just rolled his car. So I, I think your conversation from the explain real risk side would move quickly into that. I'm worried that you could have a brain injury, right? A brain bleed or a uh, skull fracture. You know, we, we know that skull fractures heal and they're often not a huge deal, but from a patient communication standpoint, you tell someone they have bleeding in their brain and a, and a skull fracture in it. Oftentimes you see their, you know, their body language and, you know, soften and then start to say, oh, okay, well, I need to go get that checked out. So again, the devil's going to be in the details here, but I think this is one that from both of our standpoints, we would feel probably just based on the limited information we talked about here, lacks capacity. Sure. So let's, Let's, uh, let's stay on the same, sort of on the same wavelength. A uh, 32-year-old female arrived to a private residence. Mom called EMS, actually. The patient didn't. The mom did. Uh, they were having a party. Patient passed out, and mom got concerned, so she called EMS. So where would you, where would you start with that one? What would you want to know from the patient? Well, I want to try and find out why she passed out, right? I'm, I'm kind of on the full exam of... Of, of what happened and, and what kind of care or maybe even urgent treatment does she need? So you ask her those questions. She says, you know what, Paramedic Anderson, I was, it was, it's New Year's Eve. We had some fireworks. We grilled a few too many margaritas and I went to the couch to sleep it off. This is where Dr. Dixon Mercy had to talk about syncope plus. Yep. So what's your syncope plus here? Your syncope is plus alcohol, right? She in the, you ask her about how much she had to drink. She says she had four or five margaritas. What would you want? What would you want to ask her next? What hospital do you want to go to? I don't want to go. I don't I, want to go to the hospital. I, 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 know I assumed mom, she didn't want to go. Yeah, I don't want to go to the hospital. My mom was concerned, but I, I feel fine now. I want to sleep it off at home. So I think this patient's probably a little less risk because you have maybe a less uh, threatening explanation of what happened here. But that's not that's not our calling, right? That's not our place. That's not what we do. Um, we, we you don't want to you don't want to obtain a refusal. Um, but I could see I can I can visualize this patient being very adamant that they don't want to go. Um, certainly have family on scene. The mom that called, she wants the uh, 32-year-old uh, female to go to the hospital, but um, mom might have a sway here, right? You talk. This is when you talk to the 32, the patient, and you say, "Hey, your mom wants you to go. Like, are you are you willing to not go if your mom wants you to go?" And so, yeah, you go, you jump to the A, but I would definitely ask for assistance. Which, did I skip one? Well, I mean, what's 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 her vitals, right? Like, let's you know, she's 32, she's healthy. Let's say her heart rate's 80 and her blood pressure's 120. Patients that are heavy, heavy alcohol users can have issues with electrolytes, can have issues with dehydration, can can have issues with hypoglycemia. And you're a you're a uh, bang up paramedic, Jordan. So I know you've already. <laughs> I already checked a D stick. I know, I know the glucose is 111. I didn't even, didn't even have to ask. 
Um, and I would do a 12 lead in this case too. It's very borderline, but she's 32 and she did pass out. That could be dysrhythmia. Um, but if you do, if you do see something wrong with say the glucose, then you point out those specific risks and you go, I'm concerned about this, or it's potentially your heart if, if you were to see something there. So I think, I think you try to don't have a bias there that it's alcohol, look for a different cause of the, the syncope episode and, and explain those real risks. But I can certainly see this patient being adamant about not going to the hospital and that just being a high risk refusal for us. So I'll be the patient for a second. Uh, Paramedic Anderson, I hear you. I know you're concerned. I could be dehydrated. I know you're concerned about potentially other reasons I could have passed out, but I've never passed out before. I don't have any medical problems. Um, I understand that maybe they, you can't check my electrolytes and my, my sodium and my potassium here in my home, but I understand that those are risks. And, you know, really, my mom feels better now that you've checked me out and looked me over. She's okay watching me here at home. And if anything gets worse, I promise I'll have her... I'll have her watch me and take me to the hospital and I'll call my doctor in the morning. I think that was a pretty good description of understanding the risks. And that's kind of where the kind of where the end of the conversation is for that patient. That's a that's a refusal obtained. So now we've done F.E.A. Now it's going to be your job to go back and record that uh, concisely and appropriately and leave her with if anything changes. Absolutely. Call us back. You know our phone number, right? So I think that's a that's an alcohol-related refusal. I, I would agree with you 100%, much less risk than the first one. But just because alcohol was on board doesn't mean that a patient can't have capacity. I think that's that was the point of that, that little example. Those are a couple of hard ones, right? I think alcohol in the mix makes refusals harder than, I'm not sure there's a more difficult component. Maybe, uh, maybe dementia could be just as confusing or more confusing. And I, and I don't know that there's a way from a podcast recording standpoint that we can get to a, this is what you do every time in dementia or alcohol. I think you fall back to these, these four points of capacity, good spot to wrap us up. So we have to be able to make sure the patient understands there, there is a decision to be made. Oftentimes with demented patients, I, you can't even get past number one with capacity, right? They have to understand the risks. They have to be able to communicate those risks back to you, the provider, and they had to be free of coercion or other influence that would make one through three impossible. Fears, full exam with vitals, expose the patient, look at the skin, look for toxidromes, look for potential infection, look for shock. Remember SI and HI. Explain real risks. I'm not a huge fan of, of you could die. Everyone could die. It's, it's a potential at every second of every minute of every day for all of us. But use your medical knowledge, use your vital signs, use your exam findings to support real things that you're concerned about in each individual patient. And oftentimes I feel like that means more to the patient than the blanket you could die. Ask for assistance. Ask the family. Ask law enforcement. Ask fire. Ask your partner. Ask the nursing home staff that knows the patient. If the PCP at the nursing home is there, ask, ask them, uh, ask loved ones. Like I said, guilt trips are very cheap and oftentimes can be, be your best friend in these situations. And if none of those work, move it up the chain as far as the, the structure of your, of your service. You know, here at MCHD, we've got 24 seven medical director availability if you run into one of these situations. So you can take it all the way up the chain and put the doctor on the cell phone. And for the MCHD listeners out there, that is a call that I never, ever, ever mind to take. I would encourage you on those situations, if you feel like you're stuck and you're concerned about the patient, two in the afternoon, two in the morning, I'm glad to take those calls. Um, record the event concisely and accurately. Make sure the chart reflects what really happened. Again, it doesn't have to be a 200 page novel, 
but hit the hit the high points. Make sure you are clear that the patient had capacity and that they were understood the risks and were able to repeat the risks back to you and be supportive. Don't scold patients, right? Remember that the S in fears is for supportive attitude, not scolding. Human nature is wanted, is going to be for you to want to scold these patients because we're concerned and we disagree with them. But leave them with the same line every time. You know how to get a hold of us. If you're concerned or you need us again, call us back anytime. Hopefully that'll take some of the fears that you have out of high-risk refusals uh, and uh, tamp those down a little bit. I thank Jordan for joining me today to have this discussion. And if you have questions or concerns, as always, hit us up at the podcast email. Otherwise, that wraps us up. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to everyone again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.